Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Take your seats, take out your Bibles, because we have come to study God's Word. Amen. We still do that here in this church. We're going to keep doing that until either the Lord takes us all home or takes me home, one of the two, and then the guy that comes in after me is going to do the same thing. So just get used to it. Amen. God has blessed us with this incredible book, the book of Hebrews. So would you turn to chapter 4? We'll finish it up today. Hebrews chapter 4. And a study that I've entitled, Our Great High Priest. Now when you think about this from a perspective of a Bible-believing Christian, someone who's walking in the grace of God, it's fairly easy for us to see what the Lord might speak to us through it regarding that. But imagine for a moment that you are in the first century, you are Jewish, You've become very used to relating to God through the Old Testament sacrifices and very specifically through the temple and even more specifically through the high priest that would go in once a year and offer up on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, a prayer for himself and a prayer for the people and seek God's atonement for sin for a whole year. But that atonement wasn't forgiveness. It was simply a putting away of the wrath of God. And so every single year, that great high holy day would roll around, and here comes this man. And that man lived in your town. That man wasn't always acting like a high priest because he was not perfect, And you can see that in the life of Aaron, the life of Moses. You can certainly see it in Annas and Caiaphas. Now imagine your hope of dodging God's wrath rests on a guy that you saw yell at somebody on his way to temple. Jesus is slightly above that pay grade. Amen? And so we have our great high priest, beautiful set of verses for us. Would you join me? We'll pray. We're going to take the remainder, just verses 14 to 16. And an amazing truth for us this morning, our great high priest, the priest who now causes us to walk in God's forgiveness, his grace and mercy. Father, we thank you. Lord, for the work of your spirit in your church, Lord, for the blessing that we have of being your kids, that No longer does that veil separate. It's been torn. And we have access to God the Father through Christ the Son. And so, Lord, as we open your word, would you open our hearts, cause us to hear your word, and be encouraged and lifted up and blessed. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now here's the the catch writing to New Testament Christians who happen to be Jewish, there is now a great high priest 
children of Israel had a lot of high priests. But now there's a great one. One who won't fail. One who will go exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could have ever asked or thought. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So we're told who that high priest is. Let us hold fast to our confession. If you've believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've confessed him as Savior and Lord. Amen? That's the confession that's in view. That's the confession that brings about salvation. That's how you become a child of God. It's not by works. It's by grace and through faith. That faith is a gift given to us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 plainly tells us we are actually redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What we have, we have because of God's grace. It's been given to us as a gift. We hold fast to that confession. And what follows next, maybe you're struggling today. Does God really love you? Has God actually forgiven you? Is he really a merciful God? Such an encouragement to us, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, the Jewish high priest was unlike everybody else. It was set apart and lived a life of relative solitude, rarely seen in public, spent his whole life training for that particular position, That high priest feigned that he was perfect, but the fact of the matter is, it wasn't perfect. And the fact of the matter is, all the high priests, all the way from Aaron to Annas and Caiaphas, who would preside over the death of Jesus, every last one of them was a sinner. Not one of them was perfect. But they pretended that there was something different about them. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. Would you please highlight, underline, put an asterisk in the margin, do what you need to do to mark these verses because this is about your Savior, Jesus. Your Savior, Jesus, was tempted in every conceivable way that you will ever be tempted and yet without sin. That is the distinctive that makes him different than all of the other high priests that went before. Though he was man, human, he was also God. And so not ever did Jesus yield to the temptation that the devil would throw his way. Jesus withstood every volley from Satan, everything that came his way, every thought of every human being that treated him unkindly. Jesus never yielded to sin. But he was tempted to do so. That temptation had to be real. We're going to be studying this in our study through James. I encourage you to be there, to understand the difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is not, in and of itself, sin. It is merely a test to get you to sin. 
You need to know the difference. So when those things come into your mind and you deal with them by the Spirit, they remain simply temptation. They are not sin. Jesus was tempted in every conceivable way, but yet without sin. Never did he yield to his nature in Adam that he gained by being a child born of Mary. Mary was a sinner. So in that sense, Jesus could have been born a full sinner like you and I, but because his father was the Holy Spirit, he was born without that sin nature that you and I have. But he was still tested, still tempted. We see that, of course, in the temptation that was given to him on the mount. And therefore, love this, because Jesus has walked in your shoes, because Jesus has been tested in every conceivable way, because he's walked where you've walked, he's heard the things you've heard, he's had to endure what you have had to endure, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Amen? Not the throne of judgment, not the throne of sovereignty, not the throne of God's holiness, The throne of the king of kings is the throne of grace. He is holy. He is righteous. Those things are also true. But he sits on a throne of grace. He gives us what we have not earned. He issues to us mercy when we deserve judgment. He's been through the fires of hell, so you don't have to go through the fires of hell. His throne is the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy. These two bookends that are effectively opposites, but speak the same message. In mercy I receive what I do not earn and cannot gain. As God pours out his grace upon my life, it's unmerited favor. These things are linked together. God doesn't give me what I've earned. Praise God, amen? Because if I were to get what I've earned, it's not going good. It's not. It's not going to go good. You know, sometimes we, we, we stop and think, as though, well, you know, I gave my life to Jesus, so from here on out I'm perfect. Eh, wrong answer. Remember that old show, The Gong Show? So you just got gonged. It's like it's over. No, I'm a child of grace. I'm a recipient of mercy. I have God's unmerited favor and I do not have his judgment on me anymore. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Super important, church, that we understand these things because too many Christians walk around in condemnation. They, they see something, they think something, they begin to deal with something in their heart or their mind. They ought to say, well, I can't possibly be redeemed. I wouldn't think that. That's not true. That's the enemy trying to convince you that temptation in and of itself is actually sin. It's not sin. It doesn't become sin until you act on it. You entertain it. You hang on to it. 
Just because you saw something you shouldn't see doesn't mean you sinned. It means the devil is effective at throwing temptation your way. He did the same thing to Jesus. And find grace to help in the time of need. Um, What a gorgeous passage. Can you imagine a Jewish person hearing those words? You see, because that wasn't their reality. Their reality was they got up in the morning and it's like, man, I I know I'm going to do something and I'm going to have a problem with God and I'm hoping and praying that I make it to the next day of atonement so those things can be taken before a holy God, prayed over, placed on the mercy seat, and those sins put away for another year. Notice what I said. I didn't say forgiven. Because under the law, no sin ever was actually forgiven. It was simply atoned for. It was put aside. God forbear with the children of Israel at the day of atonement. He took those sins and said, I'm not going to punish you right now. And I'm not making a case for corporal punishment for your children. But I grew up in the day and time where the words, wait till your father gets home, was pretty popular. Anybody... Go ahead, show me your hands. Anybody hear that? Wait till dad gets home. Why did we fear that? It wasn't because we were going to get it right then. It's because we were waiting until dad got home and the belt was coming out. The rod was going to be applied to the seat. You see, I waited in that fear of judgment. I knew I did something wrong. I knew it was known, and I was waiting for the wrath of dad. Very similar situation to the children of Israel. They knew they had a problem. They had stolen their neighbor's goods. They had committed some sin with their neighbor's husband or wife. They had gotten drunk. There was something going on. They knew what the law required. And on the Day of Atonement, collectively, all the sins of the nation of Israel were gathered together. They were stuck in a box called the Box of Atonement, same word, kephar, covered, the ark. They were put in the ark and they were put aside to be dealt with later. It was like father was coming home for the entirety of the time of the sojourn of the children of Israel in the land. So every day of atonement, a new box got added to the previous year's boxes. All that stuff was collected. Can you imagine in the mind of a Jewish person hearing those words? You're going to get grace. God's not going to judge you. You're going to receive mercy. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's unmerited on your favor. But that is exactly what Father's going to do. You see, they were still waiting to get punished. And throughout history, they had kind of gotten a little bit of that punishment periodically, didn't they? Hence the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The dispersion of the Jewish people. And so in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we find this prophecy, the great messianic prophecy of Shiloh who would come. Every Jewish person was waiting for Messiah 
because they knew all those boxes were stacked up someplace with all their sin that had not yet been judged by a holy God. It had merely been atoned for. It's kind of like it was in the back room somewhere, figuratively speaking. But they knew that Messiah would come and Messiah would be the Shiloh, the peace that God had promised. You see, they didn't actually have peace with God. They had the cessation of hostilities. Do you understand the difference? You see, if we were to get, in, we have some kind of beef. We're going back and forth. You know, that's the new term. You have a beef with somebody. There's a beef going on between us. We've got something between us. You see, we can simply choose to not smack each other in the face, right? But does that mean the beef's over? No, it does not. Matter of fact, you're waiting until the day that you see that person on the street and either you punch them or they punch you. Same thing existed with the Jewish people. The beef was still there. The problem still existed. They were still actually in trouble with God. But God chose not to extract the price. But he promised in Genesis chapter, chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet. So the combination of the lawgiver and the righteous one until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. This was deemed to be messianic really until the 1300s. This passage that said one day, the one who would bring finally rest. You see, you don't have any rest when you're home from school after you've done something and mom says, you know what, you're in trouble, wait till your dad gets home. You don't have any rest, do you? You're sitting in your room, you're like, your knees are quaking. You're waiting for the car to pull up in the driveway. It's like, oh no, I'm dead. Again, in a figurative way, that's what the Jewish people were waiting for. It's like, daddy's coming home someday. And so this promise was made. One day you're actually going to have peace. The prince of peace would actually come. The Jewish Targums would be held up and they would say, Finally, Shiloh is here, peace is here, the giver of rest, the promised prince of peace of Isaiah 9, 6. It's him, it's Jesus. You see, that giver of rest stands today over everyone that's in this room, everyone watching online, over the whole earth, and is saying to you right now, I am actually already here. Come to me. Every last one of you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because our souls are still pricked inside. We know who we are. We know that we're not perfect. We, we know we've got issues. We know that in us dwells no good thing. We know we have a problem with the holy God. When I look at God's holiness and I look at my lack thereof, I can only come to the conclusion I have a problem. I have a problem. But what does Jesus say? Jeff, you have a problem? No, he says, come to me. 
That's why the Son of Man did not come into this world to condemn the world. The world through sin was already condemned. But he came that we might have life. And that life abundant. And take my yoke and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Every Jewish person waited for that rest. But every day of atonement said they didn't have it. It was just forestalled. It was put off for another day. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not what they experienced. They experienced, I can't even go into the temple court without somebody going for me. I certainly can't go into the holy place. Somebody has to go for me. And I for sure cannot go into the holy of holies. There's only one person on the face of the earth that can go for all of us, and that's the high priest. And so they waited. And they thought and they pondered. And then comes Jesus into the world. Now one day the Jewish people are going to willingly submit to Messiah. That's really the the story of Isaiah chapter 2. In the meantime, we who have received him by grace as Gentiles and many who are Jewish have already met Messiah. There are hundreds of thousands, if not a million or more, people who are Jewish who have received Messiah. I have friends personally who are Jewish and believers. They're completed in that sense. They have the best of both worlds. They're chosen as the chosen people of God. And also chosen as the beloved of God. What a beautiful picture. You see, because before the cross, you couldn't choose yourself. There was nothing you could do to get in. Until Jesus made a way, there was no way. There was just a curtain. And that curtain said, stay out. You can't come in. You're not holy. And so Jesus took upon himself the form of a man, didn't consider it robbery. That is exactly why Paul wrote what he wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. One day every knee will bow. Every knee. Every Jewish knee. Every Korean knee. Every Nicaraguan knee. Every white Anglo-American knee, whatever you want to, doesn't matter. There's only one King of Kings. There's only one Lord of Lords, and he is Lord over all. He's the one that joins us all together because we all have the same problem. Sin is sin, and sin separates. But the sin bearer came that we would have peace. incredible picture of the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. My sin is no longer visible to God. It's been so forgiven as the East is from the West that God cannot recall it nor bring it to mind. Not that he's incapable, he chooses not to because of what Christ did on the cross for me. So I have peace with God. Where there was war. You might say, well, I kind of liked God before I got saved. 
That might be true. The problem is, that wasn't the problem. The problem was there was none righteous, not one. And all of us, like sheep, have turned away to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of every last one of us. The high priests, all they could do is get a, a letter from God as effectively every year saying, I'm not going to kill him this year. Now think about it for a second, and I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but for the purpose of illustration, it's actually true. It's actually true. That's all they got. They got a letter of forbearance, just like you would get from the bank if you can't make your mortgage payment. Doesn't mean you don't owe the mortgage. Doesn't mean they aren't accruing interest. It means you don't have to pay it right now. That's all the Jewish people got. They got a letter of forbearance as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. Well, I'm not going to kill you today. I'm not going to extract the price from you today. We'll wait. Wait for who? Wait for what? Wait for King Jesus. And so for century after century and millennia after millennia, God waited. You ever wanted to know about the long-suffering of God? You need look no further than the mercy seat inside the temple. Every year. Can you imagine your God? And human being after human being comes in with the blood sacrifices and they've offered up prayers for themselves. And it was genuine, by the way. I don't want to dismiss the genuineness of the high priest doing the best he could in that moment, in that time. But it was never sufficient. It was always short. It didn't do the job. It couldn't finish what needed to be done. And from Moses forward... They would offer sacrifice after sacrifice. They'd go through ablation after ablation. They would just continue in all these religious works, doing everything they could, but they always fell about that short. And praise God. Church, we are short no longer. Amen? So Jesus becomes what every high priest couldn't. Where they fell short, Jesus did not. Where they could only enter in one day, Jesus tore the veil in two. Why is that important? Because you now have access to where only the high priest could go previously. You can literally come into God's presence now by the blood of the Lamb. You can talk to God personally. You don't need a priest to do it. You don't need Mary to do it. You don't need a saint to do it. You can do it. Because of the blood of the cross. You can enter into that presence. Why? Because your sins are no longer put in a box. They are put away. They're forgiven. They're paid for. They're done. They're gone. They're over. 
because of the price that was paid on Calvary's cross. Hallelujah. I actually now have God's unmerited favor in its totality. So much so that one day when I take my last breath, I'm actually going to see God. Hallelujah. I didn't see God before. The high priest went in and there was a pillar of fire. There was a cloud. You're going to get to put your, you're going to, you're going to be able to have your Thomas moment in heaven. Imagine you're going to get to touch Jesus. Can't wait. You know, people ask you, well, what are we going to do in heaven? I know what I'm going to do for the first couple thousand years. I'm going to probably cry. I'm going to probably weep. I'll probably lay in front of Jesus and just go, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You had mercy on me. You forgave my sin. When I was such a mess, you unscrambled the egg of my life. You put me back together again. And you made a way where there is no way. Church. That high priest sits right now at the right hand of God the Father. Making intercession every moment of every day for you. He's going, Dad, it's okay. Jeff's all right. I paid for that. I took care of that sin. It isn't in a box to where you have to deal with it later. I paid the price, Father. It's done. It's over. The warfare has ended. You see, Jesus has a far superior title than that of Moses. Moses was a wonderful man. I can't wait to meet him. I'm sure Aaron learned a lot in his time as the first high priest. I can't wait to meet him. But you know why I'm going to meet him? Because of the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world permanently and forever. You see, the high priest used to minister in exactly one place. The temple in Jerusalem. And if you didn't manage to make it there, you kind of had to trust by faith that somebody was doing something for you. And now no matter where you are, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as you believe in the name Jesus, and you confess him as Savior and Lord, as you give your life to Christ, you don't need to go to Jerusalem to have that happen. You can do that on a beach. You can do that in the mountains. You can do that in your car. You can do that here today if you have not yet met King Jesus. Why? Because as it says here, Jesus passed through the heavens. It's a beautiful picture. The the ancients believed in three levels of heaven. There was one, the atmospheric heaven, which is where the birds fly. The sky where the clouds are. There was a celestial heaven, that's where the stars exist and planets whirl. And then there was the heaven of heavens, where God himself dwells in the fullness of his glory. Jesus has gone between all of those heavens. 
He came from heaven to earth, and when he left earth, he went back to the heaven of heavens. That path has been cleared for you. By grace and through faith. You might be asking yourself, well, in his person, I get it, in his position, Jesus is greater. But really, what actually is so great about Jesus? He is actually sitting on a throne that the Bible calls the throne of grace, unmerited favor. Do you remember where the high priest met with God previously? On the mercy seat. The high priest previously came in and said, please God, don't give us what we have deserved. Don't judge us. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not receiving what you have earned. What did I earn? By my sin, death. Hell, actually, if you want to look at it theologically correct, what I earned with my life apart from Christ was death and eternal damnation. So when they went in and met at the mercy seat, you simply didn't get what you had coming. But notice how Jesus' throne is much different than that. No longer is it that you just don't get what you have coming. You have effectively the opposite. You get what you haven't earned. You get God's grace, his unmerited favor. He actually blesses you instead of not condemning you and not cursing you, which he also does by default, if you want to look at it that way. He gives you the glories of heaven. He gives you eternal life. He gives you freedom in Christ. He takes away your sin. He doesn't put away your sin. It's gone. Jesus sits on the throne of grace, not the throne of mercy. He dispenses mercy from the throne of grace. So you get both. You didn't have God's unmerited favor. When the high priest went in, you still had a day of reckoning coming. You were still responsible, in essence, for your own sin. No longer because King Jesus sits on the throne of grace. I don't know if you're excited about that. I'm excited about that. I love the throne of grace. Because the throne of mercy just means I still got a day of reckoning coming. The mercy seat says someday he's going to call me into account. Jesus' throne is in heaven too. It's not here on this earth. A beautiful picture. I want to draw this all together really in a single thought here. Jesus now sympathizes with us, with you, with me. What's so great about him? Well, his throne is great. His kingdom is great. But what to me is the most central thought really in this passage is Jesus knows what it's like to be me. Jesus actually can identify with how hard it is to live in this world. I listen to Christians all the time. We don't know how hard it is to be me. 
And I have to say, you're right, I don't. I don't. But I can sympathize with you as a fellow human being that goes through all kinds of things that we would rather not go through. But because of sin in this world, because of my own sin nature, because of the devil, because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and because the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, because of the things that we face, we kind of are at a disadvantage, aren't we? Think about it for a second. You're a sinner in a sin-filled world. The environment that you live in is prone to sin in that sense. And Jesus knows exactly what it's like to suffer those temptations and yet overcome them. Never yield to them. And in that sense, when you go through what you are going through right now today, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Jesus actually has sympathy for you. He's not mad at you. He has sympathy for you. This is why it's so tragic when people only see Jesus in his holiness with this, you know, in essence, the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. No, Jesus actually has mercy upon you and has grace for you and sympathizes with you. He knows why those things are difficult for you. He knows the pain of being human. He knows what it's like to be maltreated by his friends. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be disadvantaged. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to have no money. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like. He's walked those roads. He hung out in your neighborhood. He in all ways was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Every point, everything you've ever faced in your mind, Every thought you've had that would have pushed you towards sin, Jesus says, I've been there. I gained victory over that at the cross. You don't have to go down that road. That bitterness does not have to envelop your life. That unforgiveness doesn't need to stick in the depths of your soul. That hatred can be cured by the love that I'll place in your heart. Christ has walked where you are walking right now. Right now. We're not given the specific temptations, everything that Jesus faced. But suffice to say that what this passage says, if there is a way that you can be tempted, he was tempted. Every way. Whatever you're facing, he's already faced it. Whatever you're tasting, he's already tasted it. Whatever you think you can't withstand, he already did. And in him, you also can have victory over that sin. The question is, will you receive it and will you believe it? He's made it 
possible for you. He's made it so that you can walk in that victory. You have to claim it. You have to believe it. You have to receive it. And because of that, we now can go boldly in. You see, before I couldn't. I don't know if you've ever pondered what it would have been like to be the high priest, understanding what it is that they did. The high priest was responsible first for himself, then for his family, and then for the entirety, hear me well, the entirety of the nation Israel. He was, in essence, the go-between, the mediator, between an entire people group, not just his own sin, not just his family's sin, his kids' sin, but the whole nation of Israel. You think maybe his knees started to shake just a little bit every time he got to Yom Kippur? It's like, what if I forget to ask forgiveness for X, fill in the blank? What if my heart's not right? What if I, I, I sit there before the Lord and I cry out and it's like, God, forgive me and forgive my wife and forgive my kids and the nation Israel. And oh yeah, by the way, there's several million of them. And then he gets to that veil and he opens it just to crack. And then he remembers something that closes it. And he opens it just a bit and he, oh, I forgot the print. That curtain said, stay out, Jeff. You can't come in here. And so the high priest developed a system. A little bell shaped like pomegranates that were on the bottom of the tunic. And a scarlet cord that was tied around their ankle. So that if they forgot anything, because the penalty for going to the mercy seat with one sin was death. We're not told how many high priests didn't make it through their first Yom Kippur. Think about it. We actually don't know. You open the curtain and you go, The cord was on your ankle to drag you back out so that someone else didn't have to needlessly die. Jesus cut the cord. Amen? Jesus tore the veil. Amen? Jesus got rid of the bells. Now you can enter in with joy and gladness into the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he did what no high priest could do. He actually canceled your sin debt. It doesn't exist anymore. In Christ, by believing what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to forgive your sins, your sins are gone. They're gone. You don't need a mediator. You don't need somebody to shake in their boots. You don't need to carry around a list I want to share this with you. I had a friend in high school. 
And we actually decided collectively, the two of us, that we were going to keep a record of our sins. Never, ever do that as a high school boy. And we got to like the first couple of pages and we thought to ourselves, man, this is like useless. What good is this? And so we would strike them through when we prayed for God to forgive them. We were both believers. It's like, okay, well, we'll line that out. That one's good. You know, my list never got empty. I got actually prideful about it. It's like, oh, you know, we'd compare lists. Yeah, I only got eight things left. How many you got? My sins have been permanently and forever forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. You don't need to keep a list, and God doesn't keep a list. They're gone in Christ Jesus. You were given the elements of communion if you'd take those out right now and reveal the matzo communion wafer, the bread, the unleavened bread. This is where it touches us, church. What a simple picture of what had to happen. If you haven't received the elements, if you'd simply put your hand up, we'll make sure you get some. You see, the Jewish system was so unbelievably complex that it took over a hundred attending priests in the courtyard handling the sacrifices. It it took a court of 72 men to determine whether people had sinned or not. It took the priests in the holy place restocking the showbread and the incense censer and all these things. And the curtain still stood and said, stay out. And so Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gathers the disciples together in a room, in the upper room, as we call it. And he took a simple loaf of bread. And what he effectively said, the curtain that's in the temple right now, I'm going to break it with my own body. And Jesus took the bread, and when he had broken the bread, he said, take and eat, for this is my body that is broken for you. Let's partake together. And then in an act of God's incredible grace, Jesus on the cross when he cried out remember he said to tell us die it is finished and it was at that moment remember what happened the veil was torn do you remember where it was torn from heaven to earth from the top to the bottom and so Jesus took a cup after supper the cup of praise 
And when he himself had supped from it, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. And as often as you drink of it, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that torn curtain and for that throne of grace. Lord, for your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed. And King Jesus, we honor you. We remember you. We actually do what you said for us to do. Lord, we remember your sacrifice that tore that curtain wide open, dispensed upon us your grace and your mercy, showered us with love, opened the prison doors and set the captives free, freed us from the bondage of our sin. We thank you that we who the Son has set free are free indeed. Thank you for being our high priest in heaven. Thank you for forgiving our sin. And Lord, we honor you. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.